Hello, my name is Sam Thiday. Some people may know me as a rugby league superstar. I played 304 games for the Brisbane Broncos. I played 29 games for the Queensland State of Origin team. He's gone straight through, Sam. He's gonna get his second try. And represented my country, Australia, 32 times. He stepped back in field, the crowd left. He's got to kick off the cross finals now. Slam it, Sam. First game for the Broncos, I was 18 and one month. Not the youngest player ever to play. Still a baby, essentially. This young black, I'd say he was brushed by the Cowboys, but he didn't attract a great deal of attention. They think he's the next Gordon Teller, some people up here in Brisbane, one of the youngest boys ever to be graded by the club. I'd worked kind of really hard throughout the year to get to the point where I had the chance and opportunity to play. And um, here I was, kind of halfway through my first season with the Broncos, and I was getting my chance and opportunity. I can still remember coming down as a 17-year-old and being really homesick and wanting to go home. I was living with an older couple at that time, Ed and Anita Mealy. Very, very thankful and grateful I had the opportunity to have somewhere to stay, but it wasn't home. You know, it was somewhere to, to rest my head and it was really outside of my comfort zone. I had to catch two trains to get to training and just started my first job at the Broncos Leagues Club and doing a pre-season, which I'd never done ever really in my life, which was absolutely hard and gruelling. The players that were at the club at that point in time were absolute superstars and they were Australian representatives, they were Queensland representatives, they were guys that had three and four years of experience already under their belt and I was this 17-year-old curly-haired kid from Townsville just trying to make my way and it was many thoughts throughout that pre-season of just going home and packing it all in and just giving up on the dream. Through persistence and training hard, July 2003, I got my chance to play for the Broncos and I remember running out in the stadium or playing the Bulldogs and it was definitely a dream come true. My first run, I ran at one of the biggest guys in their team. That was probably a bad option. He absolutely levelled me in. My second run, I decided to run him again. So, so basically, what you're saying is you didn't <laughs> learn the lesson from the start of it. Well, I didn't. Le- I didn't learn a lot of lessons in life, and that was probably one that I, I learned the hard way. But um, you know, I can remember being you know such a such a high of you know finally getting to fulfil that dream. But then, you know, the cruel, cruel reality of professional sport is I got injured in my first game and I ended up having a high ankle sprain and I missed six weeks of footy after that so I was you know you know, that was the, the thing with rugby league it could give you so much but take so much away as well there was one thing that you learnt from one of those men in the team that I always remember, and I wonder if you remember it, he said something to you in the locker room one day and he was like one of your idols and 
as a 17 year old kid, I remember you remembering it and it's sort of imprinting who you are and who you were as a footballer. Gordon Tallis. He goes, oh, you're the kid from Townsville. Kind of put me in my place a little bit. And that you don't just come in and expect a jersey and a locker. You earn it. Yeah. So and from that day, there was a different footballer come out in you. Yeah, so I can remember walking into the sheds and as a kid growing up, Gordon Tallis was one of the players I really looked up to. He grew up in Townsville where I grew up as well. He played for a rival team in Townsville, Centrals. I played for Brothers. We had a bit of a hatred and a bit of a rivalry between the clubs. And, you know, that was a bit of the banter that Gordy and I had when I first kind of walked into the locker rooms. But he was quite honest with me straight away and, like I said, put me in my place and told me that, you know, everything at this club is earned, it's not given. And, you know, that really was something that pushed me and motivated me to really earn it. And I can still remember, you know, this is early 2000s we had no espresso machines or anything like that it was an old school you know kettle and instant coffee and I can still remember making coffees for Andrew G and Shane Webke and you know they'd come in in the morning and you'd get told to move out of their locker where they were sitting and you wanted to play for the club because you absolutely loved it and I, I idolized the club as a kid and I wanted that jersey and I wanted that locker and I knew even if I'd played one game, it didn't matter because I knew that I would have made it if, if I'd just done that. So coming to the club as a young kid, thinking that I'd never play first grade with the calibre of players that were there, ended up being a blessing in disguise. Majority of our forward pack that year made the Queensland State of Origin team and were away for representative duties. And Wayne uh, comes to me before a team meeting and said... This week you'll be playing first grade and, you know, you try to be a, a tough man and go, oh, thanks, thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks for that. There's a 10-year-old girl in me sometimes that wants to scream and jump up and down, <laughs> you know, act really over the top. Um, and that's what was kind of inside me wanting to come out. But, you know, I kind of just big, big smile on my face and, you know, pretty much after the team meeting, Wayne gave me a chance opportunity to grab my phone and... My mum was super excited and, you know, she'd been on the phone to me many, many times when I'd played a bad game for the reserve grade team or throughout that whole pre-season when I was kind of umming and ahhing whether I was going to go home or stick at what I was doing and, you know, she was super excited for me and the boy on the wall at that point was a, he was a distant memory. He was pushed down and he was hidden inside. I rang Rach. When Sam excitedly rang me like a 10-year-old girl to tell me about <laughs> making, you know, his debut. I guess it's like a moment in time that you feel like sort of pauses because you can do nothing but be over the moon happy for your best friend, you know, getting the opportunity and chance to play for his club and to play for uh, like his dream that he's worked really hard for. So to get that phone call and to hear it, you know, I guess I probably was that 10-year-old girl instead of him being really excited and overdramatic and then, um, you know, and then we click into reality, right, what are you going to do, X, Y, Z? And we go into like game mode. Yeah, it's just one of those moments where you go, wow, that's really, really cool. 
When Sam made his debut, I was living in uh, the sunny coast at the time, uh, so I wasn't quite in Brisbane yet. I tried to live the sunny coast life, but it didn't quite work out, <laughs> so I moved to the big smoke. So yeah, I wasn't quite in Brisbane just yet. I remember the trauma of the next six weeks of uh, the ups and downs, and that was like you know another part of the roller coaster that you sort of roll with. But at the same time, I understood sport. And to the level he was sort of playing at, so I saw it as just more a uh, an obstacle and a roadblock, and something that just makes you a bit stronger when you come back. The roller coaster of the football life, I guess, whether it be within my friendship with Sam or our marriage, it started early. I remember it from Cohen Bear days. You know, being his number one cheerleader on the side, not literally a cheerleader, but I was his number one supporter on the sideline at um, Cohen High Days. So I was on the roller coaster early. Am I off the roller coaster yet? I don't know. I don't feel like, I feel like at the moment we're in a haze of leftovers from that particular lifestyle. To be fair, I tried to get off the roller coaster about two years out from his retirement. I just couldn't. I just, I um, refocused my energy and time into our children being babies. And as much as um, I was still on the roller coaster, I sort of put them at the front of the roller coaster rather than his career. Um, Still his number one supporter, you know, week in and week out and didn't go to as many games, but... You know, the kids were priority, so. Roller coaster gets tiring. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a different roller coaster now. After finishing rugby league, it's the roller coaster of finding a new identity, finding self and what that, or, or what I am and what that is, is it's still a roller coaster. I'm unsure still to this point what I'm supposed to be doing next it's so hard when you are in an environment where you sacrifice so much for something for the success in something and it becomes a massive part of your life you sacrifice friendships you sacrifice relationships you miss out on so many things weddings birthdays so many things that you don't get to go to because your focus has been poured into this pursuit of success in a professional sporting realm which you've always dreamed about being a part of. And then when it stops and when it ends and finishes, you question yourself and you question who you are with without that. I know sometimes Rachel would love to be able to press the emergency stop button and jump off and you know it's a different type of roller coaster now it's almost as if sometimes I do go back and visit the boy on the wall I do have self-doubt to the boy on the wall I don't think you will jump I can feel your heartbeat I can feel that throat lump To the boy on the wall, snap out of it. Step back just a bit. Quick, 
The sun's going down. You've got to get home. Shit. He had a mum, a dad, some brothers as well. But inside he had demons. His own little hell. Try to find yourself and try to find what your identity is as a kid. And when you question yourself and think that you're not smart enough to do anything else, you're not smart enough to get a normal job or nine to five, and then you find something that you're really good at and something that you can excel in and something that people praise you for and admire you for and then it finishes and stops and then what's next for you who are you without this sport that you've chosen to be such a big part of your life Um, will your relationships continue without this massive thing in your life That's probably the roller coaster that we're on now. Two thousand and six was was an incredible year for myself. I was finding my feet as a, a first grade rugby league player, playing a, a lot more regular first grade football. That year was a very successful year for the Brisbane Broncos. We went on to win the grand final that year. But throughout that year and you know, playing throughout that year, in the middle of the, of the year, I was selected to play for the Queensland team for the first time. I had my 21st birthday in a state of origin camp. Queensland had not won a series for a number of years and we kind of shook things up that year and that was going to be the springboard that year that really started the dynasty for the Queensland state of origin team. so lucky and blessed to be a part of that. Through the success of the Brisbane Broncos that year, at the end of 2006 season, I was selected in the Australian team to represent my country for the first time, and that was an amazing feeling as well. So you walk into a first-grade environment, you walk into any professional sporting environment, and, and all you want to do is you want to you want to win whatever the equivalent is of a premiership in that chosen field or sport. You want to... Uh, represent your state wherever you kind of grew up and then you also want to represent your country and I did all that at the age of 21 and you know probably quite naive thought that it was just going to keep on happening he converts the try at the death and that is full time five tries to three the kangaroos start the tri-nations on a winning note they get the job done here in Auckland defeating the current champions New Zealand 30 points to 18. Had a bit of a break after that season came back into the 2007 pre-season the start of December and you know was training well and had probably a bit of cockiness and a bit of arrogance about myself had a couple of really really bad injuries that year not bad injuries in the sense that I you know they were uh, season ending, ending, but you know, going from a year where it was the highest of heights to a year where I missed twelve games of footy through 
two different injuries. I had a, a fractured eye socket. I can still remember having a conversation with the Queensland coach at the time, Mel Meninga, and him telling me that if I got through this one game of football, I, I'd be able to get reselected for the Queensland team. And I can remember playing a reserve grade game of football. I think I came back a week early and the doctor still wouldn't let me fly to Sydney to play for the Broncos. And I was, I was going to drive the car down to go and play, but Wayne just told me to have a go in reserve grade footy and was playing for the Aspley Broncos at that point in time and we were at Bishop Park here in Brisbane and silly I took a run that probably shouldn't have taken just before the halftime break and I then rolled my ankle and then high ankle sprain, missed six weeks of footy. In the rehab process of all that and trying to get back onto the field, that's hard as well. You feel as if you're a part of the team but you're not. You train at different times, you sit on a bike while the boys are out in the field training you have a different time in the gym and you almost feel as if you're a bit of a a leper and you you can't go and hang around the first grade team anymore and I can remember throughout that time when I was going through those injuries and trying to get back out in the field you know trying to be as positive as possible driving to training one day early in the morning receive a phone call from one of my best mates partners and telling me that he'd committed suicide the night before. So, 2007 was was a terrible year. That was your best friend. That was your number one mate from the moment you moved from Townsville and to just get a phone call and to say it just so openly that, you know, your friend had hung himself overnight. I can still remember the night before speaking to him on the phone. I was sitting at home watching the footy on television with my brother. I knew that I had to go and train in the morning, so just sitting at home and I called him to come around and um, he just kind of said, yeah, yeah, kept on not putting it off, but um, just kept on saying that, he, yeah, it might come around, it might come around. Um, Didn't end up coming around that night and thought he might have got busy or um, his partner at the time called me on my way to training and I can remember taking that phone call I was driving through the tunnel on the inner city bypass in Brisbane and I wasn't far from Red Hill at that point where we were training I had to go to training and tell the coach that I couldn't train today because I had to go and pick Joey's partner up and we had to go and identify the body. He was was your number one, he was your brother. Yeah. I was trying to be strong for everybody, but then I still had so many of my own unanswered questions. Do you feel, obviously now with 
your best friend hanging himself and he was a massive part of the Broncos community and the football community and he was going through his darkest days obviously within the football realm. Do you ever get feelings like you fouled him as a friend? Definitely. The hardest thing is the what if. What if he came around and we just, you know, sat on the couch and just talk shit, watch the footy and what if that was the one thing that changed his mind or made him happy enough to maybe get through another week, another month, another year? A lot of those questions that go through your mind. That phone call that he made to you, do you ever think back to the phone call and think that he sounded different or he said his goodbye differently or... Was there anything different that would have indicated that he was about to go and take his own life after he spoke to you? Not that I can remember, and that's the hardest thing. I want to be able to remember that phone call. And if I could have said anything different, or if he sounded different, I was blind to see what he was going through. That's what makes me sad. Mental health issues in an elite sporting environment, especially a a male-dominated elite sporting environment, at that point in time weren't even talked about. We weren't even being educated on it. We weren't even, at that point in time, given pathways to talk to people or, or anything like that. So... You know, we are taught to be gladiators, to have your shield and have your sword and you hide behind that and you attack when you need to and never to talk about feelings. I had very, very little indication that he was going through the the struggles that he was going through. Previous to, to this, he was with the Cowboys. It was a fantastic opportunity for him, but he was really struggling in that environment he was in a long distance relationship with his partner at the time who was based here in Brisbane and he was in Townsville the depth of his sadness and what he was going through I don't think many people knew that at all they were best friends so Joey was around all the time so it became sort of like the trio like the three of us were just yeah it was it was just always the three of us and I didn't even find out through Sam I was with my boyfriend at the time and we were driving somewhere and I literally remember getting a phone call from my ex and he goes have you spoken to Sam and I was like sort of caught off guard and I'm going spoken to Sam like why are you ringing me about Sam and he at the time was in a team that Joey was playing in and he goes Joey didn't turn up to training last night and he goes he hung himself last night and I just remember completely freezing and going blank and then feeling ill and then looking at my boyfriend going to stop the car like we're in the middle of a highway to stop the car we cannot go anywhere we and then all I knew is I, I, I have to get to Sam like I have to um I just wanted to um shut down really I think 
There was a lot of hard moments in our friendship that week of just awkward silence and an inability of being able to have hard conversations, you know, about losing a friend. Um, I learned that in other cultures they do things so differently and I couldn't get my head around that, but Sam held it together pretty well that night. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just, it was some dark days. But I don't think he broke once, did you? You didn't break once during the the darkest of days. We'd only just been to Joey's 21st. Yeah, the year before. And then all of a sudden he was gone. I don't think crying is a cultural thing. I think maybe I'm a product of the environment that I have been accustomed to for the majority of my life and that's a tough, hard-edged environment where men play hard football and they don't cry and they don't share their feelings and you fall down, you hurt yourself, you get up and just keep on going. And sometimes that can be a good thing but sometimes it can be a bad thing as well because it's, it's a mask, hiding hurts and feelings that may never be spoken about. I think with more education and more people talking about their feelings, the hard edge of these professional sporting people, you know, those walls are coming down a little bit, which I think has its place. You know, I still think there's a great chance of opportunity for sporting people in, in whatever field they're in to have a hard edge about them and, and be tough and be strong and pick yourself up when you fall down but I think it's the toughest thing that you can ever do is have an open and honest conversation with someone or definitely with yourself Do you miss me at all? Do you think about the things we used to do? No you couldn't stand tall so why didn't you, why didn't you call? I do often say that Sam doesn't cry. But I do remember, I do remember the first time he cried like it was yesterday. And I remember being on the sideline when you played the Cowboys and we were all in Sydney and you were like guaranteed like we'd won the grand final like we had won the grand final we were there and then JT (laughs) why are we even friends with him (laughs) you know and we lost the first grand final golden point Thurston to choose from with Coot he hits it he's got it he's got the field goal he's got the premiership He has gone from a captain to a legend and probably rugby league immortality. I mean, I was a mess. And the kids, like, the kids were looking at me going, you don't cry, this is so weird. And then everyone was in this state of shock and silence. Like, I remember being in a crowd of 80,000 people and it was like shock and silence. You felt like your ears were ringing. And I could see him coming to us. And he could see the kids and he could see me and I was like, oh, I better hold it together. I've got to hold it together for him and all the rest. And I went to the sideline and he put his head sort of in my chest and sort of nuzzled in and he just sobbed. 
and didn't want to take his head out because he didn't want to show anyone that he cried. But that was the first moment where he broke. I cried because I was disappointed. I felt like I let my family down. In 2008, after a game in Sydney where we, we'd had a pretty good win, we came back to Brisbane and a few of the players all went and had lunch together and lunch kind of kicked on into the, to the late evening and I found myself in a, in a consensual experience with two other players and a, and a young lady in a toilet cubicle in a nightclub. Then next morning, received a phone call from our team manager at the time saying that there was allegations of a sexual assault. We had to get to the club to do an interview with police at the time. The woman told police she was sexually assaulted by three Broncos players in a nightclub toilet in Fortitude Valley. I can remember heading into the club and we met with the team management that time and they told us what the allegations were and I can remember being absolutely terrified. I questioned myself at that point in time. I knew that at some point I had to make some phone calls to both my parents and, and close friends. I knew that this wasn't going to go away and that this was going to be headline news for at least the next kind of month going forward and being absolutely so scared and terrified of what was going to happen. I called my mum and my mum doesn't swear at all. The disappointment in her voice kind of cut me even more. I can remember calling Rachel as well, being my best friend and someone who I spoke to about everything. I gave her a call and just told her what had happened. That was, that was probably, probably tougher to tell Rachel than it was to tell my parents. Here's someone that I cared for dearly and that had been there to comfort and support me through so many things throughout my life from such a young age. And I had to tell her pretty much everything. And even though we weren't in a relationship, our relationship was, it was strong, it was solid. And I thought that this might be something that could end mm. our relationship. Mm. Mm. I remember mm. the phone call. It was super early. Mm. I don't know. I think it was a Sunday morning. Mm. My boyfriend at the time questioned me, why is he calling you at this time? And then I literally jumped out of bed when he said the words. I have every bad word that you can think of stored up and I think I used all of them on you in that one phone call. I probably was in the first mouthful. <laughs> 
I think it was for us uh, in our friendship and where we were at. Uh, we did speak about anything and everything. Um, boyfriends and girlfriends were sort of briefed over. We never really went in depth into conversation about those sorts of things. Obviously, within the football realm, we understand what kind of opportunities might arise for the footballers <laughs> in terms of girlfriends and fun experiences and those sorts of things so we never really went in depth in our friendship conversations about that side of it so when this really came up like I felt ill um I felt so sick for him because I never in my whole like and at that stage like we'd been friends forever it's kind of like unpiecing a part to your friend that you go I would never have seen that coming and here he is busting his ass day in day out to just do one thing that could take and compromise your whole career I couldn't even comprehend and I think I was playing state league netty at the time and busting my ass training seven days a week I'm looking at you going you're playing first grade getting paid and you're willing to compromise it for a toilet I actually don't even understand so I think that really put a big wedge Uh, In our friendship, we weren't together. So it wasn't like, you know, he cheated on me or anything. I I didn't have those feelings. I was more let down and just like plain and simple angry at such a stupid decision that could ruin your career and something that you've worked so hard for. I just couldn't bear to see him. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to speak to him. I didn't want anything to do with him because at the same time, even yes, you are my best friend, but I don't associate with men like you. I think he forced a lunch on me that week (laughs) and we sat on the steps of Eagle Street Pier somewhere and had a really uh, heart-wrenching, heavy discussion. I had elements in me to understand the party life and Sam never had that. He went to church every Sunday. He had his first job at 18. So when he got the element of freedom, I guess, and self-exploration in partying and the party scene and women throwing themselves all over him, I could see a different element to him not understanding the extent in which he could get himself into. Did I give him any allowance or space around that? No, I did not. Um, So the resolving part really took a, a lot of communication and a lot of boundaries and a lot of understanding from each other's point of view, him as to why he did it and... If you are going to do this in the future, maybe just go home with one and not make it public. And I think, you know, from the other side of it and and sort of resolving, it did, it took time. So Sam went on a holiday at the end of 2010 after a big year of footy. I was slowly getting my footy back on track and back in representative teams, um, you know, back playing some good, consistent rugby league and still kind of all over the shop with what I was actually doing with my life. Rachel was overseas at the time working for Etihad Airlines and she had a bit of a stopover in Beijing and said, hey, seen you for a while, coming over, got a couple of days layover in Beijing and 
and jumped on a flight and went over and it was a doom trip to start off with, to be honest. <laughs> it was 60 hours in Beijing. <laughs> yeah. And I end up flying into Beijing, standing at the carousel, waiting for my bags to come off. Everyone's bags are going. There's one random bag still going around the carousel and I went over to the baggage claim area and spoke to someone who didn't really speak overly great English which didn't help but my bag didn't show up I ended up getting a transfer back to or to the to the hotel you know, so when your bags come we'll send them to the hotel just to set a scene though you were coming out of Brisbane hot like going into summer weather oh. and you flew into minus two in Beijing yeah with um, with no clothes uh, chucks on with jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah, I just thought it'd be nice to go over and see Rachel. And We hadn't seen each other. Like, we'd spoken, obviously, but our friendship, I'd been over there for two years at that stage. I thought it was just nice to go and see Rachel. And yeah, was I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> obviously, within two years, we'd uh, grown and... Well, Rachel had definitely grown and, you know, living in the Middle East, travelling the world, a bit of street wiseness about her, a bit of street cred about her. You know, I'd been, you know, babied for years in, in the in the sporting realms of, you know, be here at this time, pack this in your bag, um, this is when your flight leaves, this is when you need to get to the airport. This was my kind of lone, first lone adventure by myself and... I got over there and we, I was very indecisive in what I wanted to do while I was there. I had no idea. I did zero research on Beijing. I knew that I needed to go to the markets because I had no clothes and I knew that we were going to the Great Wall of China and it was supposed to be minus 10 degrees or something like that. And they didn't have my size clothes in the markets. Every store we went to. Oh, no, sorry, sir. You're too big. You're too big. We were like, oh, my God, he's going to literally stay in thongs, these jeans and this uh, T-shirt for the rest of the trip, and he's going to freeze. All I wanted, to be honest, was a fresh pair of Grundies because <laughs> I'd already flipped them once, and I was probably into the next day. Wow. Where the next Absolutely. day was no undies. <laughs> so I needed to do something. He was just so laid back, and everything was a yes, and I was just like, fuck. Leaving my friend behind. Where has he gone? Like this is what? So I'd organised everything. We did a private tour. We saw half of Beijing that day. We the next day we went to the Great Wall of China. We we did everything. So I asked him on the last night. I said, just choose somewhere for dinner. Just take the reins. Oh no, I'm happy to eat what you want to eat. I'm happy to go where you want to go. Like he literally couldn't organise anything. So then we go looking for this duck house that's meant to be one of the best. It's in a back street in Beijing. Da da da. Like I am like I'm gonna find it. That's where we're going. We got there and I must have stored up the whole fifty hours and just. <laughs> If it was a scene out of a movie, we sat down. I felt like we were in the front room of somebody else's actual house. Yeah, they, they the told us that this is the best duck house in Beijing. In Beijing. It, but it looks the worst. So we got there. We found it. We walked these back streets. I thought we were going to die because it was ridiculous. But it was. we found this place and I remember the duck being sensational. 
And I remember just sitting there and Sam again, like at dinner, we couldn't hold a conversation because he was just like, yeah, not really sure. Like everything was blasé and I just remember going, I don't know who you are or what you're doing. Like you are playing first grade elite sport level. You're representing all levels of football and you're still sitting here going, I don't know who I am and I don't know why I do it. And I, I, I literally could not comprehend who he was or why he was in the space that he was. We went back after dinner. We didn't talk the whole way back. And I remember walking all these back streets and getting so frustrated because I got lost. Getting back to the hotel, I was just like, our friendship is done. We are not the same people. And he probably sat there, but he just doesn't talk as much as I do. At this point, <laughs> my bag's finally turned up. <laughs> And I was leaving the we next got, morning. We got back. You pretty and much hugged, you, you hugged me in reception. At that night, because I night was not said, coming. I won't be up in the morning. See ya. And that was it. I was like, well, at least I got some clean jocks. <laughs> There's a win out of it. And then I think that was the longest period in our friendship that we didn't speak. I think. Yeah. Maybe four months. We just started talking just before I came back. Mum rang me one day going, I literally cannot have him at the salon anymore, Rach. He just keeps coming and crying. This is ridiculous. Like, what is wrong with him? What have you done? And I was like, we've got nothing in common. There's nothing there. You know, friendships come to an end, you know. Went down that line. I rang him back and we spoke for a couple of hours and caught up on life. And I think he'd had a few reality checks in those few months. I think there was a few really big... I remember you saying there was a few big things happened for you. You got a new dog and that was a responsibility for you. And a couple of months later, I was moving back from the Middle East. And then Sam at the time going, well, I've got a spare room, just move in here. My brother and I, he was moving back from Nepal. Uh, He'd been volunteering over there and I was coming back from the Middle East. And we were coming back, we were going to stay with Sam for like two weeks. And then we were going to find our own place to move out in together. And we kind of just never moved out. We stayed. That's pretty much where it started. Single beds. (laughs) (laughs) The Beijing trip was an eye-opening experience for me and it was, um, again, it was tough love that I needed. You know, stop wasting your time. If you really want to be the best at your craft, you've got it in you to do it. So just do it and stop procrastinating and thinking about things too much and I don't know what I want to do and I to be honest I still have those moments now where I second guess myself and self-doubt is you know the loudest voice in my head and that kind of was an ongoing thing throughout my whole life and I need to find out and figure out now and that's what I want to learn and grow and develop and get better in myself is to make that the quietest voice in my head and uh, me beating my own drum in my head being the loudest thing in there and telling myself that I am great and I am worthy and I am a great person and I am a great father and a great husband. That's the loudest voice I want to have in my head. Funny enough, I think Rach's brother went away for one weekend and the boomerang pillow was on my bed and he walked past to go to the bathroom and saw it and it wasn't in the spare room anymore. I had a real footballer's pad in the sense that my room was an absolute pigsty. 
And Rachel still questioned um, how I even brought any girls back to that house. Oh, he had a girlfriend at the time when I moved back. I was like, how does she even put up or tolerate that? Who doesn't have bed sheets for curtains in there? A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people. So, yeah, I kind of um, straightened things up and uh, I had a bit of drive about me and a bit of direction. And, you know, I really wanted to push a little bit harder in my craft and you know, be the best positional player that I could be in 2010-2011 I I won the best back row so that was the position I played at that point in time I won that award two years in a row and and life was kind of heading in the right direction it was really good Sam's story continues next week you know 2015 we I had really bad postnatal but never spoke about it he asked me if I was okay I told him no I broke my fucking face it was like he'd been in a head-on collision in a car accident at that point you felt so alone for me being a guy that played for the one team throughout my whole career showed loyalty to them and I had chances and opportunities to go elsewhere yeah, this was a kind of bit of a gut punch. I was kind of blindsided by that and pretty gutted by the way that was handled. I felt so disrespected, not even knowing that that was going to be my last game that I ever played for Australia. He was just heartbroken again. I see myself as, right now, a little bit lost, lonely sometimes, confused scared 